Hey, y'all, good morning. Welcome to Chatham Community Church once again. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to see y'all. I see some new faces. Uh, so if uh, your face is new to me, welcome. If my face is new to you, welcome as well. Uh, glad to see you. Uh, some of you came last week, and you got to meet Alex, who is our lead pastor. Like Chris mentioned earlier during announcements, we are one church in multiple locations, and I had the chance last week to be with the folks at North Chatham, but I am so happy to be back south of the hog because there's nothing like being home. So I'm glad to be with you all here this morning. If you are a guest, uh, I'd love to meet you at the end of the service. I'm going to be in the back. Come say hi. I'd love to hear your name, uh, how you found us, what your experience was like this morning, and uh, make sure you get one of our welcome gifts. Um, before we get into the sermon, uh, we've got a bit of family business to talk about. Uh, if you've been around Chatham Community Church for any length of time, you're going to know that what I'm about to say is true. But if you haven't, let me just say, uh, we don't talk a lot about money here at Chatham Community Church other than the giving, the offering announcement that we make at the end of announcements every week. We rarely talk about money here. We don't want people to feel pressured. And we've seen the hand of God move in with favor towards us and with generosity towards us through you all and through the people who've been in our community over the course of many years. So we've never been anxious about um, making sure that there's enough provision, enough to do the work God has called us to do. But what we like to do is at this point in the year, we like to give you an update of where things stand financially. Some of that is because we have new people in our community. Uh, and some of it is because giving patterns show that people tend to prepare for year-end gifts. And so we want to give you a sense of where we're at and what the need is. So our fiscal year here at Chatham Community Church runs July to June. So um, we approved a budget in July or in, in June, of uh, $1,054,164. This is for both our campuses and for the work we do, both here in Chatham County and beyond. And so through the first quarter, so through September, uh, both our giving and our expenses are below budget. Uh, but our giving is uh, lower than our expenses. That's fairly typical. It's fairly typical because many of our expenses are fixed, and many of, bit of some of the bigger ones come at the start of our fiscal year, and giving patterns uh, fluctuate throughout the year. But we want to give you a sense of where we stand. So at the end of uh, September, our expenses are $53,000 more than our income. Again, that's not atypical for where we are at this point of the year. But we want to let you know where we are, and we'll let you know what we do about those things. So at this time of the year, what we tend to do is we tend to tell people, if you are new to our community and have, consider, have started to consider this your home, we want to invite you to give, to take, uh, to take some stock or ownership in our mission and the work we do to serve Chatham County and the work we do to serve people beyond. The opportunities you have that we see here, like partnering with Cora, or like we did with Chatham Serves a few weeks ago to serve people in the community, to put up roofs, to clean houses, to help people in hard situations, they're all because of the generosity of people who come here. So if you've uh, benefited from that or, or like, yes, I want to be part of a community that does that, I want to invite you to consider starting to give and to give generously. And also, uh, for those of you who are thinking about what you're going to do with your year and giving, just to keep us in mind. Uh, what we tend to do is after the end of the year, when year-end gifts have come in, our leadership team takes stock of where we stand and makes adjustments. Uh, we are a very fiscally conservative church in many ways, and, and yet we are open-handed and generous. So we want to tell you about the opportunity, invite you to partner in, and let's make sure we continue to walk together with the mission God has given us here in Chatham County. And just so you know, we are not anxious. Just as we've seen God provide year after year, we know God's going to provide. But we want to let you know so you can consider partnering with us. All right. 
Oh, my name is Jaime. I already said that. <laughs> uh, let's get on with the sermon. Mr. Holland's Opus was a movie that came out a number of years ago, and it covers the 30-year teaching career of a man named Glenn Holland. And in the movie, he's portrayed by Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, at the start of the movie, Mr. Holland is a young talented, and has a mildly successful already career as a musician and a composer, but his family is growing, and he decides to take a job as a high school music teacher. It's not a job that he particularly likes, but it's a job that provides stable income, and in his mind, it's a job that's also going to provide him afternoons and summers to work on his music and his grand symphony. And all of you who are teachers here are laughing because you know the ridiculousness of that aspiration. Right? He's been working on this symphony, and he's hoping that uh, his time as a teacher will buy him opportunity to work on that symphony. 30 years later, due to budget cuts, he loses his job. And he's starting to feel like he's wasted his life, like his teaching career really didn't amount to much, and he doesn't have any music to show for it. He never took off as a musician. He never really, never really materialized. And so one day, as he's clearing out his office with his family, right, it's his last day in school, they're clearing out the office, and they hear music coming from the auditorium of the school, and they follow it, and when they get to the auditorium and they open the doors, they find this. The auditorium is full of people, mostly of Mr. Holland's current and former students, some colleagues, and they, they stand up and give him just a standing ovation. There's lots of words of affirmation and encouragement and gratitude. Mr. Holland is overwhelmed. And at the end of that time, the, the curtain parts, and there is an orchestra composed of current and former students ready to play that symphony that Mr. Holland had been composing over the course of 30 years, and he gets to conduct him. Um, but it's one of the words of his former student that really strikes me. It gets to my heart. And she says it just before uh, the symphony is, the, the orchestra is revealed. Here's what she says to him and to the audience. She says, Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life and on a lot of lives I know. But I have a feeling he considers a great part of his life misspent. Rumor had it that he was always working on this symphony of his and that it was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside our little town. So it might be easy for him to think of himself a failure, but he would be wrong because I think that he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you, she says to Mr. Holland. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. See, early in his teaching career, Mr. Holland, who had gone in not wanting to be a teacher, not really liking the classroom, feeling like it was not worth his time, he decided to change his approach to his job. He didn't commit like a grand heroic gesture. He just took made a decision to change his posture, to take a posture of compassion and care for his students. And he made it his goal that as he taught, his goal was to help students fall in love with music. And that's what he did day after day, year after year, and it accumulated into significant change for the lives he touched and for the town he lived in. It wasn't a grand or heroic gesture. It was small. But small things done deliberately and done consistently over the course of, a t of time can produce large-scale change, and oftentimes large-scale change 
for good. The things we've been talking about in our series, Counterculture for the Common Good, the things we've been talking about are mostly applied not through grand gestures or heroic acts, though some of us may have opportunity to do those and we should take them, but rather they're applied through doing things that are good, that are loving, that are true, that are compassionate, that are caring, done consistently and values embraced consistently over the long haul. And that makes a difference. Our argument has been that this countercultural Jesus way is what produces the greatest good for our lives and for our society, for our community, for our world. And that there isn't a problem that is too big or that is too intractable that this Jesus way can't bring good into. The Jesus way can bring good into any and every situation. And it's not so much about grand or heroic acts, though sometimes those are part of it. It's actually mostly about small things done for good, done consistently, making an impact over time. There is no problem that can't be touched and resolved and addressed by the countercultural Jesus way. It's even true with something as contentious and seemingly intractable as the tensions that exist when people cross cultures or cross ethnicities or cross races. Now, when conversations about the tensions that exist between cultures, ethnicities, and race come up, people tend to take one of two extremes. There's a tension that emerges even with how to tackle these issues. On the one side, you've got people who say that it's all about changing individual hearts. And on the other side, you've got people who say that really, if we're going to make a difference in this, we've got to address systems and structures. And those two people tend to argue with each other. And here's the thing. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. There is a source of this that is in the individual heart, but systems don't emerge out of nowhere. Systems are created by people with individual hearts. And if people with individual hearts can do things that are good and that are not good, then they can also set up systems that are good and systems that are not good. And systems even that can sometimes intentionally or not favor one group over another. And not just talking about groups of different ethnicities and races, but anyway, we might categorize ourselves as people. The lordship of Jesus applies both to the human heart and it applies also to the systems that come from human hearts and from human action. It applies to both. The countercultural Jesus way can speak good to both instances. Though there are likely to be and have been some grand acts some heroic actions that have put a dent in individual hearts and even in systems. Most of us are not going to be called to take those types of actions. Most of us are not going to be called to grand or heroic acts to resolve tensions that might exist between cultures, races, or ethnicities. But, but, we all have something to do. Because all of us in our day-to-day -day can do something something that can put a dent in individual hearts, something that can put a dent in systems and structures. And it starts with our posture towards those who are different than us, those, those whose background might be different than us. And I'm going to give it to you right from the start. The posture starts with compassion. Consistent compassion is the key to be countercultural as we cross cultures or ethnicities or races or any other differences that exist in our society. It all starts with having a compassionate heart. Over time, maintaining compassion will make a difference. Over time, maintaining compassion will bring good 
in the spaces particular where we feel that it's intractable, impossible, or irresolvable. And we're going to look at a passage that has ethnic and cultural tension all over it, but it also has compassion. And by the end of the passage, one individual's heart will be transformed. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to be in the book of 2 Kings. It's in the uh, Old Testament. Early on in the Old Testament, you'll pass uh, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you'll keep going a little bit further. If you reach the Psalms, you've gone too far. But we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll start with the first verse, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have access to it. Here we go. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given great victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, I know we're not familiar with the concept of talents or shekels, but just this is a load, load of money. Lots, 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 years, years worth of, of salary. Just a lot of money, right? So just imagine tons of money. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending you my servant Naaman so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robe and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick quarrel with me, right? Right from the beginning, we meet this man called Naaman. He's a guy that seems to have everything going for him. He's valiant, he's a successful, he's com- he's successful soldier and, and leader, he's a commander of armies, he's got prestige and power, he's highly regarded, he seems to have been given victory by the Lord. This guy is at the top of his game. He's at the top of life. But right at the end of that initial description we have of him, there's a big but. And it says, but he had leprosy. And everything turns on that. He had leprosy. He had an affliction, an illness that was so significant that in the description of him, it's the thing that weighs against everything else. It's the thing that weighs against everything else. He was successful, but sick. He was valiant, but afflicted. The fact that he even listens to what a slave girl had to say uh, means that his affliction was likely known, and it likely means that he had sought solution to his affliction, but nothing had worked out. Now, he, has, he was someone powerful, someone successful, someone with prestige. He likely had access to the best and brightest minds and resources of his day in his particular country, with his particular people, to address his need. But so far, it seems that nothing has worked. He remains sick. He remains afflicted. But that's not the only thing that's broken with Naaman. It's not just a skin condition that he has. We'll get a clearer picture of what's going on as we continue to read the passage in a little bit. But what's already coming across in this passage is that his people, the people of Aram, are in conflict or have been in conflict with the people of Israel. Men that respect him have gone into Israeli communities and have looted Israeli communities and have taken from Israeli communities, including taking people or at the very least 
a young girl. And this young girl is now captive in Naaman's household. Friends, you can't keep a slave if you think them your equal. So right from the beginning, we know there is some disparity in how Naaman thinks of himself and how he thinks of the people of Israel, at the very least, of this young girl. And then we have this young girl. She's a foreigner in the house of Naaman. She's been taken from her home. She's been taken from her people. She's been taken from the God that she worships or the land in which she worships this God. She's been brought to this place where they have different customs, different traditions, where they worship other gods, and she is unable to return to her people. Her life has been interrupted. It's been disrupted, and not for good. The situation is not good for her. And we would understand if we saw anger come from her, and maybe she does feel anger. Maybe there is a sense of injustice in her. We would understand if at learning about Naaman's condition, her response would be to say, good, I hope he gets worse. We would understand if her response would be simply to hide what she knows, that she knows that there is a solution for him in Israel. We would understand if she just let things play out. But from a lonely place, she does neither of those. She speaks. Now, nothing indicates that her masters are particularly benevolent. They may be, but nothing indicates that they are. Regardless, she speaks. She speaks because she seems to know something about the power of God and something about the God that she worshipped and that the people of Israel worship. She speaks because rather than taking what would have been the expected posture, she's chosen something different. She's chosen compassion. In our current cultural moment, two of the common approaches to racial and ethnic and cultural, cross-cultural tensions are apathy and hostility. You've got people who ignore that there are tensions. You've got people who don't care that there are tensions. You've got people who write tensions off and try to rationalize them away. And then you've got people who seem to want to burn everything down. They just want to fight and fight and fight and fight and overpower and get on top. But compassion offers a different alternative. Compassion is a countercultural alternative to apathy and hostility, and it is a needed alternative in our particular cultural moment. A few years ago in London, people were demonstrating in response and in solidarity uh, in light of the deaths of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And at a particular demonstration, it, it was targeted by groups from an extreme section of society, and they came to counter protest, and the counter protesting led to violence. Violence broke out in this protest and counter-protest. And Patrick Hutchinson was there. He was demonstrating because he wanted the barriers between races and ethnicities to break down. And as he saw the violence break out in his heart, he felt he didn't want violence to be the lasting memory of this event. And then he saw the man, a man named Bryn Mayle, a white man who was counter-protesting, and he was lying on the ground and people around him were coming after him. When he saw Bryn, he knew what he had to do. Patrick knew what he had to do. He gathered some of his friends, and they formed a barrier. They formed a cordon around the man, around Bryn. And Hutchinson went to him and picked him up and carried him on his shoulders. He took him to a place where he could get aid. He fended off along with his friends, people who were trying to get to him, people who were trying to enact violence against him. Now, Patrick could have chosen apathy. 
This man had come to counter protests, had come to disrupt what he and the people he was with had come to do. He could have even stood aside or celebrated the violence. He could have jumped in and continued to do whatever it is that caused Bryn to fall down. But he chooses something different. He chooses compassion. And it makes the difference. It made it all the difference for Bryn. made all the difference for Patrick. It's made all the difference for those of us who've read the story. Compassion is what the girl chooses in the story we just read. She gets word to Naaman. She tells him there's a prophet in Samaria. Go see him. Go see him. So what does Naaman do when he gets this word that there's a prophet in Samaria and he should go see this prophet? Naaman goes to the king. He goes to his king. And his king sends him to the king of Israel. He goes to the person who's in authority over him, the person who's in power. He's been told to go to the prophet, but he doesn't go to the prophet. He goes to the king. He has a way of doing things. His approach to these situations is to appeal to power because power has worked for him. Power has gotten him where he's at. And power speaks to power. And power seeks out power. Naaman gets ready to strut his stuff, to show his importance, to pay for his healing, to pay for himself to get better. What the girl had told him came against his framework. It came against his expected approach, what he believed he needed to do, how he would approach these types of conflicts or these types of situations between cultures, and he doesn't respond immediately. And because he doesn't respond immediately, he stays unwell far longer than he needed to. He stays unwell far longer than he needed to. Friends, when we fail to heed the countercultural call, not just in this situation, but in any situation, when we fail to heed the countercultural call, we delay our deliverance. When we fail to heed the countercultural call, we delay our deliverance. Naaman has received the countercultural call. Go talk to the prophet directly. Go to him. He will heal you. Healing will come. And what does he do? He doesn't do that, and he stays unwell. But it's not just that his healing is delayed. By doing what he chooses to do instead, he causes problems. By getting kings involved, he's now made this a national or a cross-national issue. It's a political matter now. The possessions he brings, the letter he brings with him from his king as he comes to the king of Israel, both show his importance, but also show the magnitude of this request and have strings attached to it. See, if the king of Israel takes his stuff and he isn't healed, there are going to be consequences. If the king of Israel rejects his request and says, no, we won't actually do anything to heal you, there will be consequences as well. And the king of Israel knows this. He understands the implicit threat. He understands the stakes. And so he responds with despair because he's been put in an impossible situation. He can't heal Naaman. In fact, Naaman wasn't told to go to him for healing. He can't heal Naaman, but he also can't turn Naaman away. Naaman has taken the conventional path to dealing with these cross-natural, cross-cultural issues instead of the countercultural one, he'd been told. Instead of going to the prophet, instead of letting him appeal to God. And what ends up happening is he creates chaos. He creates tension where there didn't seem to be any, or he adds tension to where there already was. Because friends, when we avoid the countercultural path and try to resolve things by other means, we don't just make no progress, we don't just not resolve issues, we create chaos, or we add to the chaos 
that already exists. People have been trying to eliminate ethnic, racial, cultural, national tensions for a long time. People have tried lots of things. Not every method has been peaceful. But every attempt that doesn't follow the countercultural path of Jesus, which is marked by, among other things, compassion, every other path that is not marked by that always creates chaos. It always leads to further harm and further deterioration in relationships. Let's take a look at what happens next in the midst of this chaos, this national, cross-national issue, cross-cultural issue tension that um, Naaman has created. Here's what it says. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. He said, I thought, that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God with his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. Now Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back with the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. The prophet, the man of God, the one that Naaman was told to go see right from the outset, hears that there is chaos. Hears that there is chaos in the royal court, and he sends word. He sends word to call Naaman to come to him, to do the thing that he was told to do initially. Once again, Naaman gets an opportunity to heed the countercultural call. And he finally goes. And he goes with his entourage, right? Imagine the scene. Remember, I told you, this is a lot of money. These are like carts full of money and stuff and cloth. Like, it is a lot. Now, that is appropriate. Might, might not look out of place in the royal court. But at the house of the prophet, not so much. And Elisha is unimpressed. He signifies the fact that he is unimpressed by not even going out to meet him. He's confronting Naaman with a reality. The reality that in order to be healed, he's going to have to take a different approach. He's going to have to actually continue to walk the countercultural path. And he puts his finger right where it hurts, right at the core of Naaman's prejudice. He tells them, go bathe in one of our rivers. Naaman has had to come to a land that he doesn't like, to a people he doesn't think highly of, following an approach that isn't what he is used to. He's had his power and his prestige not recognized or acknowledged. And then he is told to bathe in the same waters as those people. And he breaks. He's had enough. That's about as far as he can go. He takes offense and he's ready to walk away. But he's so close. 
He's so close to getting what he wants, to getting what he needs. It almost hurts to think that he would have come all this way, that the solution is right there. The, the healing is right at hand and he's ready to walk away and leave it all behind. He's ready to leave without being healed. Situations, when we are dealing with people of different cultures, of different ethnicities, or different races, can oftentimes be loaded. And there can be things that can be misunderstood. We can feel especially vulnerable when we are overwhelmed or when we feel misunderstood. And oftentimes, for some of us, the reaction is to walk away, to take offense, to simply shut down. But friends, as it was with Naaman, it's true for us as well. If we are too quick to take offense, we risk missing the work God wants to do in and through us. If we are too quick to take offense, we may miss the work God wants to do in and through us. We know what happens with Naaman right at the end. We know he's healed. We know he worships God. Can you imagine what the story would have been like had he had walked away at this point? Had he let the offense take hold? Had he simply turned his back? He would have missed what God was doing. But Naaman's servants intervene. They intervene and they clarify the situation for him. They help him parse through all the noise, all the offense, all the things he's feeling, and they get to the core of the matter. What do you truly want? Does Naaman want to be respected more than anything else? Does he want things to go the way he expects it to go more than anything else? Does he want to be treated as the commander of the Aramean army more than anything else? Or does he want to be healed more than anything else? And if he wants to be healed more than anything else, then is there anything he won't do? Is there anything? Why say no? Is he willing to do what it takes, even if it's counter to what he's used to, even if it comes from a different method, even if it comes through a different God, even if it causes him to confront how he feels about the Israelite, even if it means deferring to a people he feels superior to, can he choose to be humble in order to be healed? In compassion, the servant girl and Elisha provided opportunities for Naaman to experience not just healing, but to confront what's broken in his soul to come to believe in the God of Israel, to come to believe in the Lord. And Naaman finally chooses to listen. He chooses to move past taking offense. He chooses to engage with humility, and he is healed. Not only is he healed, but he comes to know the Lord. Friends, if we want tensions to resolve as we cross cultures, as we deal with people of different races or ethnicities, if we want there to be peace, if that's really what we want, is there too high a price to pay? Is there anything? Now, we don't know exactly what the repercussions were of Naaman's healing and of its transformation, but I can't imagine Naaman now going willingly or joyfully or leading the charge to attack Israel any longer. It would be hard to go attack the place and the people who follow the God who brought your healing. The countercultural path that they all walked, particularly Elisha and the servant girl, was part of God's covenant. It's a covenant he made with Abraham early on in Genesis where he says, through Israel, all nations will be blessed. It will reach every people group, every society, every culture. And that promise 
was not just true for them. It echoes through Jesus' ministry and it echoes through the mission of the church. Here's how Paul frames it in Ephesians 2. He says, For he, speaking of Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made two groups one, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, which were the major classifications, at least for Jewish communities. He's made of the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He's what we believe about the countercultural path of Jesus. There is no uh, severity of racial tension, of cultural tension, of ethnic tension and conflict that is bigger than what Jesus has accomplished in the cross and resurrection. There is none. And he has called us to be the heralds of that message, to be the ones who can bring peace, to be the ones who can join together what has been divided and what threatens to remain divided. You and I might not be called to grand or heroic acts or gestures, though there have been many of those, but we are called to faithfully execute what we can in our day-to-day life starting with a, count, with a posture of compassion. This is the countercultural legacy that we inherit. Daryl Davis is a blues musician. That's what he makes his money from. He is a blues musician. And in addition to being a blues musician over the years, he's befriended tons of people who are part of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and who are part of neo-Nazi groups. It might be helpful to know that Daryl Davis is black. He's a black man. And many of those people he's befriended have ended up changing their ways. And it all started with one of them coming up to him after a show that he played and telling him, I really appreciated your music. And then uncomfortably, this is odd for me to appreciate your music because I'm a member of the KKK. Now, in that moment, it was a very awkward moment, lots of tension, lots of reasons to turn away. Daryl could have chosen apathy. He could have chosen indifference. He could have just turned and walked away. He could have chosen anger and hostility, but he chose something different. He did a small thing. He simply took a posture based on a question he had in his head. How can you hate me if you don't know me? Basically, he said, I bet you if he comes to know me, he will stop hating me and something will change. He had compassion in one conversation and then in another and then in another, and then in many, many more over the years. Small, compassionate acts done consistently have made a difference. One estimate is that he's collected 200 robes from former members of the Ku Klux Klan as they come to him after knowing him and say, I need to turn, change my ways. We can all do things like that. Choose to be compassionate. We don't know the large-scale impact that it's going to have, but Daryl didn't know that first day either. He simply committed to being compassionate. One act, and then another, and then another. If we choose those type of acts, we can make a difference. If we choose the countercultural way of, of Jesus, we can make a difference in the ethnic, cultural, racial, and national tensions that exist in our world. Here's what it's going to look like to bring countercultural conciliation. Retain compassion. We've been talking about that all day. Listen actively. Pay attention to people's stories. Engage humbly. Let's be slow to take offense. Remain hopeful. That one is key. That one is key because it's really easy to get exhausted when we see the scale of things and the ways people sometimes respond. 
and ultimately love. The command we've been given to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are not necessarily heroic acts, though they may lead to them, but they're things we can all do in our day to day. It may seem simple, but I promise you, it makes a difference. Let's walk in this path. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you have torn down the dividing wall of hostility. We don't have to. You have already done the heavy lifting. Lord God, would you help us? Would you help us remain compassionate? The tensions that exist across races, ethnicities, cultures, and nations can feel overwhelming. It can be easy to get angry and to want to be hostile. It can be easy to simply stop caring and say, let other people handle it. Lord, we may not be the ones who appeal to large-scale governments. We may not be the ones speaking in front of thousands, but we're the ones who are in our communities. We are in our families. We are in our neighborhoods. We are in our places of work. We are in the grocery store. And in those places, we can choose compassion. We can choose compassion. We can choose to listen. We can choose to be humble. We can choose to be hopeful. We can choose to love. May we be those kind of people so that the tensions that exist in our world that seem intractable may dissipate and there would be peace. In Jesus' name, amen.